So reading from uh, Micah chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moshech <coughs> during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart. Like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards, I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Japhir. Those who live in Zanan will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief. Because disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness fast horses to the chariot. You are where the sin of the daughter Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marashah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Abdullam. Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as of the vulture for they will go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Phil. Hi, everyone. My name's Nat, and I'm really looking forward to 
digging into MICA today and over the next four weeks. You can see we've called this series Disobedience, Disaster and Deliverance. It's kind of a pretty intense title, isn't it? And you will have picked up from that video that Micah is a pretty intense book, even though it's quite a short book. It's an emotional roller coaster as Micah cycles between those movements of judgment and hope. In some ways, it's a book that might seem quite unfamiliar to us. So the kings that we heard mentioned in chapter 1 are Ahaz, Jotham and Hezekiah. We might not be super familiar with their names and what happened under their reigns. The place names also aren't all particularly familiar. Jerusalem, Samaria, Judah might be familiar, but some of the other names, Beth Ophra, Beth Ezel, Shafir, Zanan, aren't probably very familiar to us. If you know anything about the book of Micah, it's likely to be those verses from Micah chapter 6, verse 8. We sang the song earlier and our video picked them up. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's a great verse to know, but understanding more about the whole book of Micah will add more meaning for us as we understand this verse better. To help us with some of these challenges of understanding the book of Micah, we're going to use this morning an approach to reading the Bible that has three stages. Uh, to give my husband credit, this is his creativity that came up with this. So these three stages are we're going to mind the gap, we're going to smell the roses and we're going to join the dots. Minding the gap helps us to be aware of the historical distance there is between us today and Micah and when he was prophesying and the people to whom he was prophesying. Smelling the Roses is about really appreciating the book that we're reading, the book that we're hearing. And joining the dots is going to help us make sure that we apply what we learn, what we read to our own lives today. And those steps help us to read the Bible well as history, as literature and as theology. So first of all, we're going to mind the gap between our day and Micah's day as we look at the who, when, where and what of the book of Micah. I don't know if there are any Star Wars fans here this morning. Anyone a Star Wars fan? Maybe a quiet one. Um, you know at the beginning of each of the Star Wars movies, if you've, if you've watched them, that there's the Star Wars crawl. So the music starts and the words start scrolling up on the screen. Your spine starts tingling. You're ready to uh, be there with the rebel fighters fighting against the Empire. Yeah? Uh, maybe not. Maybe some of you are there. But the opening crawl orients us to where we are in the Star Wars epic. It reminds us of who's who, of what's been happening and of where we are now in that amazing story. Micah chapter 1 verse 1 is just like that. It orients us to where we are at Micah's moment in God's great epic story of Israel. It helps us to mind the gap. So here's the Micah opening crawl. I don't have any uh, stirring music, sorry. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, 
during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So the who of the book of Micah is the man Micah, whose hometown was Moresheth. This was a town about 40 kilometres southwest of Jerusalem. This was a bit optimistic to put up. Um, The pink bit is Israel, the orange bit is Judah, the southern kingdom, and there's a little yellow box on the left sitting in the Mediterranean Sea that is pointing to Moresheth. So it's just uh, southwest of Jerusalem. Micah's name means who is like Micah. And there's a little play on words uh, with the meaning of his name to watch out for in Micah chapter 7. Other than that, we don't really know much more about Micah himself. The when and where of Micah is that he was uh, prophesying during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. They were kings of Judah. And it's a vision concerning Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom. Samaria and Jerusalem are the capital cities of both of those kingdoms respectively. If Star Wars is epic, the story of the nation of Israel is mega epic, if you can say that. And it's historical rather than fictional. This mega epic story of God's people began with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with creation. Other defining moments were God's promises to Abraham, which the video mentioned in Genesis, the Exodus when God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt uh, under Moses' leadership. That was a real high point, but followed by a low point of the people wandering around in the desert for 40 years because of their failure to trust and obey the Lord. Moses died on the edge of the land that God had promised to bring his people into. So it was Joshua who led them into that land. He charged them to be strong and very courageous, to obey all of the law that Moses had given them. Once they were in their land, their story followed with conquest, with judges leading them, then with kings, with King Saul, then David, then Solomon, another high point in the story of Israel. But when Solomon's son Rehoboam was king of Israel, the northern tribes rejected him as king. So the kingdom of Israel split. So this is optimistic again. Uh, the, The single line that you can see on the left of the screen is the joint kingdom of Israel. The two lines are when the split happened. So the top line is the northern kingdom Israel. The bottom line is the southern kingdom of Judah. That split happened in 930 B.C., Micah lived a long time after that, about 200 years later. Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah reigned in Judah from about 740 BC to 687 BC. So Micah prophesied around the end of the 8th century BC, 735 to 700-ish. And Micah prophesied at the same time as Isaiah and they're down the bottom right of the screen there, prophesying just as the northern kingdom was about to end And so God's people would just be the southern kingdom of Judah. The summary is that Micah prophesied in fearful times. That is the who, what, when and where of Micah. What Micah brought into these times was the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Micah in a vision that he saw. 
It's clear right from the beginning, from verse 2, that this wasn't good news. The vision is addressed to all of the peoples, all of the peoples of the earth. But it's about God's people, about Israel and Judah and also addressed to them. It's a message from the Sovereign Lord, we read, from the Lord in his holy temple. The power and perfection of the Lord underlie this vision. This powerful and perfect Lord is bearing witness against his people. He's testifying against them. That is really not good news. We've seen in the video that there are three sections in the book of Micah, chapters 1 and 2, which we'll look at this morning, then chapters 3 to 5, and chapters 6 and 7 together. They can be seen as three lawsuits that God brings against his people, three cycles of disaster in response to their disobedience. We've already heard in our reading this morning about the disobedience of God's people, about the disaster that God will therefore bring on them. But as we saw in the video, thankfully it's not all disobedience and disaster. There are these glimmers of hope through the book and we'll see a little glimmer of hope at the end of chapter 2 this morning, a promise of deliverance for the future. Today we're going to see a full cycle in, in Micah chapters 1 and 2, disobedience, disaster and deliverance. We'll slow down uh, in the next few weeks and see a little, um, see half of each of those cycles in the remaining weeks of this series. But let's lean in now to Micah 1 and 2 to help us smell the roses. We're going to look at the details of the text and feel its message. And as we do that, we'll explore our three themes. So first of all, disobedience. When our son was in preschool, I read a parenting book called One, Two, Three, Magic. I was a little sceptical. The title seemed to promise a lot, uh, but it was recommended to me by a friend of mine who was a paediatrician, and I figured if anyone should know a good book on parenting, she should. It was actually a really excellent book, really helpful. Basically, it helps parents set up a discipline strategy. It's a strategy where the child knows ahead of time what will happen, what process will take place when they disobey their parents. And they know ahead of time what the consequence for that disobedience will be. Micah's vision makes it really clear in chapters 1 and 2 what Israel's disobedience has been and what consequences will follow from the Lord. Have a look at verse 5, which you can see in your news sheet if you've got it there. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Both kingdoms are in the firing line here. The whole covenant people of God stands guilty. The two capital cities are singled out, Samaria and Jerusalem. They're the centre of corruption, maybe pointing especially to the leaders, but also including the people in general. If you read the history of this period uh, in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you can see really clearly what Micah is talking about. Repeatedly in those books, there's a refrain used to describe the kings of Israel. So-and-so did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The kings of Judah at this time were a little bit more mixed. 
Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Hezekiah did that even more. But Ahaz was more like the kings of Israel, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. In more detail, what we see in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles is that both Israel and Judah uh, sometimes worshipped the right God, but in the wrong way. They chose their own way of worship. Sometimes, though, they worshipped completely the wrong gods. Their sin is idolatry. Micah calls out here their idols, their temple gifts, their images in verse 7. He calls it an incurable plague in verse 9. Perhaps starting in the northern kingdom, it spread down to Judah and Jerusalem, to Micah's own people. We're not tempted to that same kind of idolatry that Israel and Judah were. But, but perhaps we, we do struggle with idolatry. Perhaps we give our hearts to other idols. Perhaps we seek security and hope in other places than in our God. Romans 1 diagnoses humanity as worshipping and serving created things rather than the creator. Tim Keller has done some thinking and writing in this area and he identifies a number of idols which can draw us away from wholehearted worship of God. Four of the most basic idols he identifies are power, approval, comfort and control. And he says those underlie more concrete idols, things like family, work, success, money. They're all good things in and of themselves, but not when they become ultimate rather than subordinate to our love of God. I found it really challenging to meditate on some of these ideas of Keller's, to meditate on which of these might be idols that tempt me away from loving God with all my heart. Perhaps you might find it helpful to reflect on some of those as well. Idolatry isn't the only thing that Micah points out in these chapters for Israel and Judah. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. And then from verse 8, Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. What Micah is describing isn't careless disobedience to God. God's people are planning and plotting evil. They defraud, they rob, they see something and they take it. Fields, homes, inheritances, robes. They leave their victims without livelihoods, without homes unable to experience the blessing that God intended for his people in the land. They're greedy, they're corrupt, they oppress, they propagate social injustice. It's a terrible picture, isn't it? But perhaps you recognise our world in that description too. Perhaps even sometimes the church and ourselves. 
What we see here is that God requires of us the vertical and the horizontal in our worship. That's the shape of the commandments that God gave the people in Exodus. Worship God and love other people. Israel has failed in both. And that's not all either. In chapter 2, verse 6, do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for these people. So it's not just the leaders and the people of God who are disobedient. The prophets are too. Other prophets are telling Micah to be quiet, not to share his vision. The people themselves query Micah's message. They ask, does the Lord become impatient? They're implying by their question because they know the Lord is slow to anger that he won't ever act. Does he do such things, they ask. They cast doubt on whether the Lord would ever bring judgment on his people. Micah calls them all out. The words of the Lord do good to those who are upright, he says. But these people would rather hear from a prosperity prophet preaching plenty of wine and beer. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? They love to hear the covenant promises, but not its prescriptions. They like the covenant comforts, but not its commandments. Maybe we're sometimes like that too. Maybe sometimes we like to hear about gospel salvation, but not so much about gospel sacrifice. It's a terrible picture that Micah brings. God's people are idolatrous, greedy, corrupt. They oppress the vulnerable. They're deliberately deaf to the words of the Lord. We fail in many of those same ways. We don't live under the Old Testament law as Israel and Judah did. But God's call on us has the same shape, vertical as well as horizontal. Some of you might remember when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the law is. This is what he said in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. The vertical, love the Lord your God. The horizontal, love your neighbour as yourself. God's assessment of Israel is bleak. His assessment of us is bleak too. Ephesians chapter 2 we read, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, gratifying the cravings of your flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And in response to this disobedience, Micah warns of a bleak consequence. Micah declares that disaster has come from the Lord in chapter 1, verse 12. The Lord says it too in Micah 2, verses 3 and 4. I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. We can feel the disaster in Micah's opening words of chapter 1. Verse 3, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. 
The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. It's a picture of unmitigated destruction. The world seems to fall apart as the Lord comes. It melts. It splits. The picture becomes more direct in verse 6. I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken in pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. It is so intense, isn't it? Samaria will be destroyed. Her religion will be eradicated. Remember Assyria, the global superpower of Micah's time. They invaded Israel in 734 BC and again in 722 BC. Assyria was God's instrument of judgment. 722 BC was the end of the northern kingdom and at least the beginning of the end of the city of Samaria. It's unclear looking at uh, historical sources and archaeology uh, exactly how damaged Samaria was in 722. Some sources claim it was demolished then, others say it took a little bit longer. But however long it took, the Lord did make Samaria a heap of rubble. Her idols were broken, her images were destroyed, her people were either captured or killed. The Lord brought disaster against his people from which they could not save themselves. The disaster wasn't just the destruction, although that was bad enough. The significance of the destruction was even worse. Micah is a one, two, three magic moment. It's the word from the Lord to his people about the consequences that their actions will bring. But the real one, two, three magic moment happened hundreds of years before this, on the edge of the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses sets before his people blessings for obedience curses for disobedience he set out the covenant that the Lord had made for them the message on the edge of the promised land was if you obey then you get to stay Micah flags here that the moment of truth has come the people haven't obeyed the Lord and so they're not going to stay in the land that he promised we live at such a different time don't we but just like Israel, we face a disaster from which we cannot save ourselves. Not the disaster of losing a nation or of going into captivity, but we face the disaster of God's wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 again, verse 3. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Micah's response to Israel's disaster was to weep. In verse 8 of chapter 1, Because of this I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. He wept over the plague of sin. He wept over the consequences that would follow for Samaria. And then he pivots and he weeps as well for Judah and Jerusalem. This plague has spread to Judah. It's reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. 
The next section of chapter one with all of those place names is a little bit tricky to translate and a little bit tricky to understand. Micah mentions a whole lot of towns. We don't know where all of them were, but they were around where Micah lived, around southwest of Jerusalem near Moresheth. There's a lot of wordplay happening in this section and I think the wordplay underscores how appropriate the judgment was. It makes us remember and feel the power of Micah's message. In an Australian context, Micah might have said something like this, Port Ferry will be the pits, Hall's Gap a hovel, Torquay will be toppled. That's the kind of sense of the text. It's a heartbroken lament. And Micah calls other people to lament with him. In verse 16, shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. The reason for Micah's lament is clear in verse 12. Disaster has come from the Lord, even to the very gate of Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Judah weren't destroyed by Assyria when they came and destroyed the northern kingdom in 722. But under King Ahaz, they were pummeled by other nations, by Syria, by Israel, by Edom, by Philistia. You can read about all of that in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Assyria came back and attacked Judah and Jerusalem in 701 BC. Judah survived that time. But disaster came from the Lord, even to the very gate of Jerusalem. We are not Israel and Judah, but sin impacts our world. Sin impacts our church. Sin impacts each of our lives. Sin means that if justice is to be done, we will face God's wrath. How do we respond to that? Do we weep? As Micah wept, do we weep as Jesus wept over Jerusalem's failure to recognise him? It feels really bleak, doesn't it? In the face of such disaster, is there any hope for Israel and Judah? Is there any hope for us? Thankfully, as we work through these cycles in Micah, we face up to disobedience. We hear about the disaster that God's judgment brings. But that's not the end of the story. Finally comes deliverance. On the other side of judgment, Micah saw hope. Hope that can only come on the other side of judgment because of the justice of God. Hope is something that we were all looking for over the last couple of years, weren't we? At different points through our lockdowns in 2020 and 21. During our first really long lockdown, I remember seeing case numbers falling and I think we felt hopeful. We were in these lockdowns, but we could do it. Freedom will come. In, 2022, uh, in 2021, hope seemed more uncertain. Even when we had lockdowns, it didn't seem to be changing things. Nothing seemed to go as planned. What kind of hope does God offer his people? The hope Micah declares is very different to the hope of this world. It wasn't a vain hope, but a sure hope, not a temporary hope, but a permanent and final hope. Chapter 2, verse 12, I will surely gather 
all of you, Jacob, I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. It was a distant hope, a hope of regathering, articulated even before the people of Israel had been dispersed. It was a substantial hope. I will bring them together like sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. As well as anticipating, anticipating a gathering, it was a hope of liberation. Verse 13, the one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. And it was a personal hope brought about by their Lord and King. Their King will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. When was this hope fulfilled? Maybe you can hear some echoes in Jesus' words in John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. This hope was fulfilled in Jesus, the shepherd king. And it's still being fulfilled One writer said this, The fulfilment of this prophecy commenced with the gathering together of Israel to its God and King by the preaching of the gospel and will be completed at some future time when the Lord shall redeem Israel, not national Israel but spiritual Israel, which is now pining in dispersion out of the fetters of its unbelief and life of sin. Brothers and sisters, our hope lies in Jesus the Good Shepherd. Let's wrap this up now very briefly by joining the dots. We actually have been doing some of that on our way through, but we'll draw it together now. It's really clear, isn't it, that Micah doesn't sugarcoat our predicament. We all disobey God. Micah doesn't pull any punches. Disobedience leads to disaster. We face God's judgment. But we can thank God for the good news that he brings deliverance. Ephesians chapter 2 again. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In the words of Micah chapter 2 verses 12 and 13, God has gathered those who trust in Jesus, the good shepherd, into his flock. There is a great throng of Christians all around the world who worship God today. Jesus has gone before us. He has broken through death into life. Spiritually, we are raised and seated with Jesus now waiting to experience our resurrection in all its fullness when Jesus returns. So why don't we pray now and thank God for our deliverance. God, we thank you so much for this great story of rescue and salvation that you are weaving through the history of the world. We thank you, God, that even though we are disobedient, even though we face disaster, the disaster of your judgment, we thank you that you offer deliverance and hope through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Thank you for his defeat of death and for the hope of life that we have forever with you in him. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.